you have a Bible, now would be the best time to open it and follow along as we read from 2 Samuel chapter 17. And we're back again in the life of David, who, by the way, at this point in the story, is in exile. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, hear this. You could actually go home if you really believed what I was just about to say. And it is this. You are not in control. You are not. God is in control. We are not. And you'd be a very wise person if you, along with me, could remember that consistently no matter how much it rubs against our pride and our self-sufficiency and our, our uh, terrible ability to think we're the smartest people in the room. And uh, so that's pretty blunt, but that's what we're going to get here uh, as we consider this text together. So strap in your seatbelt. And let's read chapter 17 and see what this is all about. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king. And I will bring back the people, or bring all the people back to you. As a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man. And all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right to the eyes of Absalom. And all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai, the archite, also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken, shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel uh, that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place, and as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear, for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you will go into battle in person. 
So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the men with him not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Now, let me say about verse 14. We know what this verse says. The people in the story do not know what this verse says, okay? And you might want to underline verse 14. It's pretty significant. For the Lord has ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now, therefore, send quickly and tell David, do not stay at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now, Jonathan and Ahimaaz uh, uh, were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them that they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom, so both of them went quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose, and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, went off home to his own city, he set his house in order, and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Then David came to Mahanim, Naim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab, and Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileite from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd, 
for David and the people with him to eat, for they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Pretty long chapter, but this is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is life to us. It is alive. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to discern the thoughts and intents of our heart. We pray today that your spirit would take the word and work in us, that which is well-pleasing in your sight. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So here we are, continuing the saga and the story of David. And this particular story is amazing. I've been thinking about it for a couple of weeks, and uh, it's just so engaging in its intricacies in the way the narrator or writer of the book of Second Samuel tells this particular story. And as I said earlier, the theme of the passage is the kingdom of God shall stand because and only because God is in control. The third stanza of Charles Wesley's hymn, Rejoice the Lord is King, begins this way. His kingdom cannot fall. He rules o'er all the earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. While the final line, as you know of Luther's famous hymn, The Mighty Fortress, dogmatizes that his kingdom is forever. Whether we prefer the joyous lilt of Wesley or the heavier majesty of Martin Luther, the assurance is the same. No one, nothing, can ever overthrow or terminate Yahweh's kingdom plan. Yet in the muck and goo of history, the stability of Yahweh's kingdom often looks much iffier to our naked eye or undiscerning eye than it really is. In other words, the promises of God are true. But when you and I look out at the world and we see what appears to be the church shrinking and we see what appears to be doctrinal soundness gone awry, uh, people are being tossed by every wind of doctrine to and fro. There doesn't seem to be anywhere you can legitimately put any hope in anything. But I'm here to tell you, and the Bible, even more importantly, is here to tell you, his kingdom shall not fall. That is your only hope, and it is my only hope. His kingdom shall not fall. And we see that illustrated today in the life of David as we continue. Uh, Because there are all sorts of Absaloms and Ahithophels running loose in this world, ready to muscle through their own kingdom plans, the Bible tells us over and over again that we have to keep in mind the promises of God. We, uh, the right perspective is crucial. We must not focus on character studies or personal tragedies. This chapter reports a threat to the kingdom of God and to God's appointed king, but we are not to worry. Luther and Wesley are right, so is Daniel. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom, and it will stand forever. And that is the point of this narrative. So let's kind of look at this 
and come together in, in terms of thinking about how the writer of Samuel lays this out. We know already that Nathan the prophet has said that one of your sons to David after he sinned with Bathsheba and confronted him and says, you are the man, consequences are going to ensue. And what's going to happen is one of your sons is going to take your concubines out in public for all to see, which means he's taking control of your kingdom and he's going to expel you as it were. Well, that has happened. Judgment that Nathan prophesied has come true at this moment in history. David is now in exile. He's hightailing it <laughs> out of Jerusalem, and we'll see even in this text he will cross the Jordan River, which is sort of a reverse for the history of Israel. Israel is all about, if you know anything about the historical books, Joshua and following, crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Now, King David is exiled. He's on the other side of the river. And so the text is telling us a living threat is here. And Ahithophel gave Abs um, Absalom military advice, making several key points. David had 600 Cherethites, Pelethites, and Gittites. Perhaps, perhaps some others would join him, but Ahithophel said we need 1,200 men. And that was a much larger force than David could ever gather together under such notice. Twelve represents Israel. That's what Ahithophel is thinking. And he discerned that the contest was about which was the true Israel, Absalom's kingdom or David's kingdom. Once the 1,200 were assembled, Ahithophel wanted to launch a strike immediately. And his target was one man and one man only, David. He wanted to cut off the head of the snake, so to speak. He wanted to isolate one guy. Just as David had isolated Uriah the Hittite to die in the battle, Bathsheba's husband, so now Ahithophel comes with this counsel. By the way, when you look at Ahithophel, he's a very wise, respected, revered man. He's older and wiser than most counselors in Israel. He had quite a reputation. But there's one thing you need to remember about him. Who was his granddaughter? Bathsheba. Bathsheba was his granddaughter. Why did Ahithophel only want to take one guy out? He had a vendetta. And being a grandfather myself and having a granddaughter, if anybody did my granddaughter, what David did to Bathsheba, which was basically forced her, to become his own, I'd be thinking the same thing Ahithophel was thinking until the Holy Spirit came across and reminded me that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. You got to let that go. But Ahithophel, his counsel is obviously, it appears to me, and we can't know anybody's motives absolutely, but it appears to me the way he's looking at this problem is this is a me and David thing. This is me and David problem. And I can take care of it. We can execute it. There'll be a minimal amount of disruption, a minimal amount of bloodshed. Think about it, Absalom. It'll protect your reputation. And so it seems brilliant, and it was. If Ahithophel could strike David before he had a chance to get himself organized, 
He would have the advantage of surprise, and he would spread panic among David's troops. He also hoped to limit the damage of the rebellion. If David's troops fled from the king, Ahithophel would be able to isolate David, strike him alone, get rid of him forever. Once David was out of the way, it would be a simple matter for Ahithophel to bring all Israel, that is all the people with David, back to Absalom. And the return of the whole people would accomplish, be accomplished with minimal bloodshed and in minimal time. And then Absalom could fulfill his name, Ab, which means father, Shalom, peace. He could be the father of peace. And so Ahithophel was suggesting that Absalom do to David what David intended to do to Uriah, isolate and kill. And politically and militarily, Ahithophel's was very shrewd advice. It would be far better to end the civil war in a day than to have a battle, to risk a battle that would go on and on and on and on, which would only embitter the people being ruled against Absalom. By contrast, Ahithophel's straightforward and realistic speech Hushai's advice was delivered in an ornate, elusive, rhetorical way. Hushai's slick. Hushai, you remember, is David's guy. He's a plant in the palace to help David. And so Hushai comes along, and he has a much more complicated kind of thing. But if you'll read it carefully, what you see is Ahithophel's Strategy was all about Ahithophel doing what Ahithophel wanted to do to David. Hushai's was all about Absalom. And Absalom's vanity and pride and swagger was drawn <laughs> toward this plan. He loved the idea of getting the glory. He loved to be the idea of taking on the king. And so uh, Ahithophel's advice, it's, a, it's amazing when Hushai is asked about godly Ahithophel's advice, the wise man, he simply said in the Hebrew, the first two words of that sentence are, not good, not good. I got a better plan. I got a better idea. And so he shocks everybody. He fills uh, his speech with allusions to David's lives and very vivid descriptions. And uh, David uh, struck Absalom's army, army, even the man whose heart is like the heart of a lion would quail. Hushai evoked the legend of David, reminding Absalom of David's wilderness years by saying that his men were what? Mighty men. So his prescription was, let's gather up an army like the number of grains of sand on the sea from Dan to Beersheba, which means the whole country. I want a massive force. Now, why would Hushai say that? Because he's working for David. What was his point? Give David time to get organized. Pretty smart guy. And so Hushai goes on with his counsel, and he seems to be gathering a hearing. He made several points. First, he claimed that David, being a seasoned warrior, would be expecting a quick strike attack, and he would be hidden far away from the rest of his enemy. Ahithophel's attack would be useless or worse since Absalom risked losing the initial battle, and eventually that might undermine his entire coup. 
Positively, Hushai argued that Absalom should wait until he had an overwhelming force and make sure that he had no chance of losing. What Absalom needed was an army like the sand of the sea. And Absalom, not Ahithophel, should lead the army, for why should the grandfatherly old Ahithophel receive the glory of victory? And so he posits, my plan is the better plan. My plan will work. Absalom will be satisfied with killing David. Ahithophel wanted uh, a surgical strike, but Hushai advised Absalom to initiate a slaughter. And it's amazing, as you look at the text, uh, Hushai advised Absalom to initiate a slaughter and to carry out the ban against David's men and against any city who had given him any kind of aid. Hushai's counsel was go in there and have no mercy. Destroy everything, destroy everybody. Shock and awe wouldn't even come close to what he's advising. Well, Hushai played to Absalom's fears and vanity. He undermined Absalom's confidence in Ahithophel and his wisdom. And above all, gave David time to regroup and choose where he's going to fight. The only task remaining was to get word to David of what's going on, to give him a uh, briefing on what's really happening. So he sends a couple of priests, Jonathan and Ahimaaz, who were both staying in in Rogel, the spring of Rogel, and a maidservant brought information from the city to them. However, David's spy network sort of broke down when an informant let Absalom know that there were two priests hiding. The priests fled to Baharim, the same place David encountered Shammai, who cussed him out. You remember that. Had a lot of blue language for him. And they discovered another Rahab. Isn't it like the Bible to sort of keep bringing these themes to us? Oh, you remember who Rahab was, right? She was a harlot who lived where? Jericho. And she hid who? The spies. And she lied. This woman does exactly the same thing. She hides them in a well, covers up the well, spreads grain on top of the covering for the grain to dry. Everybody walks by. Nobody's the wiser. And so they are spared. And as a result of that, uh, David was able to exit the land. Uh, sort of a, a, a reversal of Joshua's entrance to the land, but his life was spared. Uh, it almost seems as if here he's moving in reverse. Ahithophel's advice was rejected. But it seems to me to go hang yourself is a little bit of an extreme overreaction. But he did it. And it could have been, he saw the handwriting on the wall. It could have been that he could see that Hushai's plan, no way that could work. And since that wasn't going to work, who was David going to come after when he came back? disloyal Ahithophel who got Absalom on the throne in the first place. So I think kind of like the uh, people living at Massah in Israel in that fort and palace that I was able to go to last year which was wonderful 
Uh, the Romans built up ramps, sieged the city. They were starving themselves and decided suicide was a better option than what they knew the Romans would do to them once they got there. And I think that's the kind of thinking Ahithophel had. What a sad ending for a wise man. What a sad, sad ending. Now, it, it now seemed likely as David returned to the throne that Ahithophel had no hope. And so something wonderful happens. But chapter 17 ends with an amazing thing. David arrives at Mahanaim, just as Jacob stopped at Mahanaim and returned from Haran. David's exile there associated him with the patriarch. And, but this is even more amazing. Gentiles came out to aid him, including the recently conquered prince of Rabbah, Shobi, who had replaced his brother Hanun as the head of the city, doubtless with David's help. And in David's first wilderness period, Yahweh provided David with food, which significantly came from the Gentiles. David was received into Gentile hospitality as Israel would be in Babylon and as the Gentiles would receive the exiled Jesus. Foreshadowing here all of these unlikely Gentiles who had a history with David come and donate to him, give him wonderful provisions to take care of his exhaustion just as on the day of Pentecost the Gentiles heard the gospel and 3,000 were converted. The Gentiles fled and ran to Jesus just as they do to David here because David is not about David or the text of 2 Samuel is not about David. It's using David as a signpost that points to a reality of one greater than David, Jesus. But I want to go back to verse 14 because you think I'm through with the sermon. No, no, that's side one. <laughs> you, you can tell I'm old because side one is referring to what? Well, I guess wax is popular again, isn't it? People are listening to albums now. I can remember mowing yards as a kid, saving up my little pennies. My dad would never let me charge more than $2 a yard. Can you think about that? $2. But, oh, yeah. And an album cost $3 back then. See, I'm really old. The Beatles came out with a new one. It was $4 at Dixie Mart. So, anyway. I saved up my little pennies and I would go buy an album and I would wear that thing out. Now on a 45 you had a side one, 45 RPM, little round record. You had side one and side two, A side, B side. Sometimes the B side might be a better song than the A side, but the A side sold better. Well here's the other side of what I want to talk about. Remember how I started the message? You are not in control and neither was Absalom and neither was Ahithophel and neither was David. God is in control. In our tradition, often referred to as a Reformed tradition, and I will accept that designation as long as you remember that once Reformed, we're always still Reforming. 
uh, we can eventually fine-tune each other out of the picture, but I want to talk about the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of divine providence for just a minute, for the balance of our time, and I'll do this quickly. What about when a crisis hits your life? It could be an illness. It could be an accident. It could be cancer. It could be the loss of someone very special to you. It could be any grief-producing scenario in your life in which you're left with the question whether you articulate it or not, why is this happening to me? Now, some of you are not so bold to say that because you still think God is going to get you. But God will allow a genuine lament. But there is an answer to that question. The same one Job got, and he didn't like it either. But here's the answer. God is in control, and we are not. The doctrine of divine providence teaches us that God is even in control over the powerful forces of disease and death. Is my illness or the situation I'm in in accord with God's plan for my life? Is God sovereign over all things? How are the physical sufferings of little children compatible with the grace and love toward them? The doctrine of divine sovereignty can be intimidating as a subject to think about, but the bottom line is very, very good news. God is indeed sovereign. But his sovereignty always works for the good of his children. God is sovereign over creation. We do not have a weak, anemic, sort of grandfatherly, uh, what was the word I'm looking for, demented uh, God overlooking the universe. Of all the remarkable things that Scripture tells us about God, perhaps none is as striking as the truth that God is sovereign. The sovereignty of God refers to the idea that God not only knows all things comprehensively, past, present, and future, but has also planned and ordained all things such that everything from the greatest events of history to the most obscure come to pass according to the counsel of his own will. Scripture informs us that the sovereignty of God is a source of great comfort and encouragement properly understood for believers in Christ. Yet the doctrine of divine sovereignty is often subject to misunderstanding. And maybe we need to think about it together a little bit more. Scripture also often speaks of God's sovereignty as extending to absolutely everything. That is, it is meticulous. God is the creator, the one who called everything that is into existence out of nothing by a simple decree of his mouth, by divine fiat. This act of creation is precisely the reason why everything belongs to him. You think the money you have in your pocket and in your bank account is yours? You are wrong. It is God's money. Everything belongs to him, everything. We need to think of that. This act of creation is precisely the reason why everything belongs to him. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell on it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. 
As human beings claim property rights and things that they make, so God has a cosmic scale uh, where he claims ownership over all creation. The lordship over creation continues throughout the entire course of human history. But as we begin to understand God's sovereignty, we know this. God proclaims through Isaiah that he both knows all things and is the one who brings all things to pass. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is true for events that we experience as good and those that we experience as evil. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. What the Old Testament communicates with eloquence, I would say, and the New Testament confirms unmistakably, for example, as Paul says, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. While this impresses us with God's sovereignty over every single thing in creation, Scripture is principally concerned with the sovereignty of God over human affairs. He has a special interest in presiding over the lives of his creatures. The psalmist, for example, reflecting on how God shaped him even in the womb, says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. And so God superintends and oversees everything he has made. How does God execute his sovereignty in this world? God is not a a delegator. God is not a uh, absentee landlord. God is high and lifted up. He is transcendent. He is above and beyond and other than we can even conceive of. Yet at the same time, God is imminent. He is near. He comes to his people. He is not far from any of us. And so while God is both transcendent and imminent, he works his will throughout he pays attention. <laughs> He's active. And it involves all three persons of the Godhead, the Trinity, as it were. God raises up and executes his decrees. He executes his sovereignty. And providence is the word we use to refer to God sustaining all things in their existence as well as his governing and directing them to appointed ends. In your bulletin, you saw this quote from Dr. Van Drunen. The scripture attributes a special role in providence to the Son of God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Even when Jesus was on the cross, he was upholding the universe by the word of his power. That's how great he is. In him, all things hold together. The only reason we had not blown ourselves up, the only reason why this world hasn't completely disintegrated and been consumed, as it were, by what some people would call our idiocy is because he holds it together. In him, all things exist. He is the Velcro or the glue, <laughs> poor analogies, that holds everything together. He's sovereign. We need to bow down and worship him. 
Through his Son, he upholds and governs all things. He does not simply act directly and immediately upon creation, but often acts through intermediaries. That is, he uses the actions of his creatures to bring about his own will, even when the creatures have intentions that are completely different from his own. The Bible assertion that God is sovereign and in control over all things, I know, raises many questions, particularly how a holy and good God ordains so many evil things to happen and whether we are really responsible for our actions. I can't take any more time to flesh this out other than kind of summing it up. The wonderful thing <laughs> for the believer in Jesus Christ is this. The God who is sovereign, transcendent, ruling, upholding, confirming, executing his decrees is good. Amen. He's good. He's good. He is good in his essence and being, which means he cannot do evil. He's good. And he's also personal. He's not just a mere force. But even better than that, he's my father. My father holds it all in his hand. Now, does that mean that understanding that, I now hold the key to understanding everything that happens in my life? No! You could drive yourself nuts trying to figure out the providence of God and how God is using this or that, mainly because there are about what? How many billion people in this world? Six? Seven. I didn't read the paper today. Seven, seven billion people in the world, and, you know, God's looking at all of them. So things may be happening to you that you can't put a one-for-one one correspondence on how this is affecting my life, but hear me and hear me well. God is at work in you to accomplish you good. That's why a verse like Romans 8, 28 has any meaning and hope for us all. God is sovereign. God works everything for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And therefore, God can take evil things that happen to us bad things, distressing things, gut-wrenching things, gut-punching things, and work and take them, the warped as they are, and accomplish great good. And that is our hope. That is our hope. That is our hope. It's not for you to figure out. It's not for you to read the tea leaves of Providence and come up with an answer. He'll tell you the same thing he told Job when Job raised this question before God. God said to Job, where were you when I created the world? <laughs> now, sometimes our attention needs to be God's. But understand this, the person who rules the universe was willing to undergo the severest rejection and outpouring of wrath upon himself to save you. The worst event that's ever happened in human history, the most heinous and evil event that has ever occurred in human history, and there have been many, but the worst was the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. 
And yet, out of that, what happens? A whole host of people that no one can number will be saved. So, the wisdom of God is profound. So, as we look at David's life, and this subject of providence comes over and over again, it's because God had willed that the counsel of Ahithophel would fail, that Hushai's would go through, and we're going to see next week how it all comes out. But let me say this, you'll like the ending. Hallelujah. You know, postmodern shows don't have any endings because they don't have any answers. They love dystopia. They love the idea that, well, things don't always work out, so let's all just, you know, go jump off a bridge holding hands together somewhere. But we don't have to do that. We have a kingdom that shall stand, and one day we will be living in the reality fully developed of that kingdom. And that is our hope. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. God is true. Let every man be a liar who doesn't believe it. But we thank you that you've spoken to us today. You've encouraged us. Though many of us are going through things that if it was within our power to get rid of and fix, we would do it. We would run to do it. And yet, in those moments of darkness, we remember what you have said to us in the light, that you're working, you're working, you're working, you're constantly at work. And your work is for the good of your children. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we worship you with all of our hearts and may we give back to you a portion of that which is all yours. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.